Greetings and welcome to the Cathartic Yardstick with your hosts, Ray and Mark. In this episode, your intrepid hosts examine the phenomenon of time travel. Imagine the technology of the future. For example, with the advent of self-driving cars, it's only a matter of time till we have a country western song where a guy's truck weaves in too. Welcome to the Cathartic Yardstick Podcast with Ray and Mark. I'm Ray. And I'd be Mark. And, and this would be our podcast. It would be if not for what? I guess it is. Uh, it must be our podcast. If, if not for... Uh, if not for time travel. Should I get my sound effects out of the way? Uh, go ahead. Okay. I think what we need is a traffic reporter. <laughs> that, way, that way we can do <laughs> is we can sit there and say, Hey, Ray, I'm looking down on I-95 and traffic northbound is moving kind of thick. Now here we are at the state office campus outside of Albany. <laughs> Hi Ray, I'm over your I'm over your house. Get away from your pool. Oh my gosh, that's ugly. Oh, don't look at it. <laughs> Oops. So that was that was my sound effect of the night. And if you like it, press thing. There you go. <laughs> here you go. Okay, now I got that out of the way. Did you see the thing in the papers uh, and on the internet last week about the, the Navy and the UFOs that we had uh, talked about earlier on the yeah. podcast? Yes, it's so interesting. What I found interesting about it is that uh, historically, when you ask like the Department of Defense to comment on a UFO sighting or something like that, they're quick to try to dismiss it. Oh, it was swamp gas. Oh, it was weather balloon. Oh, it was the planet Venus was inside. This time they they said, well, none of these film clips were um, actually classified, but they also weren't cleared for release. But we will confirm that these are absolutely accurate, unexplained aerial phenomenon. And I don't remember the Department of Defense ever saying that before. Right. And this, this also comes at the same time when they've formalized the process for reporting these kind of events. So it'll be interesting seeing whether there's another country that has some hypersonic technology with drones that is really eluding us, or whether we have it and we're using our own ships to test it, um, our own DOD to test it, or whether we're getting visited. Yeah, I, it turns out I'd only seen two of the ones. I saw the, the third one for the first time this week, and uh, it, it just the thing took a right angle. I just can't believe it just went sideways right off the screen yeah it's it, just it, uh, it's amazing absolutely is absolutely is so it's um it's kind of interesting and and we're both here instead of area 51 yes that <laughs> turned out festival. interesting yeah. what was it about 100 people showed up yeah it was barely, i just saw footage of people kind of uh filming themselves running towards the gate and that, that was about it now, what would have been interesting is to see how prepared was the Department of Defense, because I guess there was like tw there were like twelve law enforcement officers or something like that. But I'm wondering how much we had in reserve that we could pop over the side of the hill. Or they just they just break out the alien technology and take care of everybody anyway. Probably, <laughs> probably, or maybe you don't need any preparation. They can just go back in time and then be prepared. Do you think you can go back in time? Um, well, you say no. I said, well, you know, it's it has been uh, a fixture of the collective. <laughs> try again. It's been a fixture of the collective consciousness for quite a while. I mean, if you go back even to the Victorians, H.G. Wells' time machine, 
it's certainly something people have been thinking about. And do, do you have uh, any, any stories about that? Do I have any stories? Oh my gosh, yes. I, oh, before we get into that, should I mention Beetle News? Okay, sure. Um, one thing I ran into in the news that I thought was actually kind of interesting, um, just in terms of I've never heard it mentioned before, popular lore has it that uh, there were a number of stressors on the Beatles after, let's say, 1968, where the group was really kind of fragmenting. John and Paul really weren't writing together at all. There's a lot of bickering. Um, George was kind of miffed that his material wasn't making it on the albums, but yet some of Paul's arguably throwaway ditties were getting priority on the albums. And so there's a lot of tension. But legend has it that everybody was on their best behavior during Abbey Road because they kind of knew this was going to be the end, the last uh -huh. recorded album. And so everybody was on their best behavior. And sometime at a business meeting after that, John basically said, I want a divorce. I'm done. I'm out of here. But Mark Lewishan, who is um, a writer uh, on all things Beatles, and he's had a lot of access to the Apple archives and whatnot, came up with a... Um, uh, a recording. Uh, Ringo was apparently in the hospital, and so John wanted to record the business meeting, and it took place right after Abbey Road was finished, but it hadn't been released yet. And it was interesting, uh, but in this recording that Mark Lewison played for the Guardian newspaper, uh, they're talking about what should be the next album after Abbey Road, and what song would we release as for the Christmas market? And um, what was interesting is John said, okay, you know, I'll write four songs. And Paul, you should, uh, you should contribute four songs. Uh, George, um, your songwriting on Abbey Road was great. So you, for the first time, you should contribute four songs. Ringo, um, two songs if he wants them. Apparently, Paul, other people who have actually heard this apparently said he really comes across as being kind of snotty. Um, but he basically says, yeah, pre previous to Abbey Road, frankly, I didn't think George's writing was that good. And George snaps back with, that's all a matter of taste. People have enjoyed my music all the way down the line. And then John kind of jumps into George's, George's defense. And he says, well, you know, he says, one thing we should do is we're writing separately now. We ought to get rid of the Lennon-McCartney myth. And so what we ought to do is do credits on our own songs. And he says, Paul, really, when you have a song like Maxwell's Silver Hammer, apparently there were so many takes of that song, John just walked out. He stopped participating because he thought it was kind of a stupid song. Um, and, and he said, with a song like that, you really should consider, you know, giving it away to like Mary Hopkin or something like that. And, um, and Paul turns around and says, you know, I enjoyed that song. That's why I put it on the album. And so they were actually talking about what the next project was going to be. And then within probably about a month of that, uh, John plays live piece in Toronto with a pickup band. And he comes back, he says, I want a divorce. And so it's kind of interesting to see they were, they were at, they were kind of at the end, but there was an option for another album and something flipped the switch. And so that's kind of interesting. That's new news to me. That when Phil Spector was brought in to finish that album, was, was, that, was it that album? I'm not really familiar with Beatles history. That was Let It Be. Let It Be okay. was the last album released, but Abbey Road was the last album recorded. Um, okay. The session, they, what they were trying to do was they were trying to, they wanted a project they called Get Back, which was just kind of um, getting away from the really produced albums and getting back to the raw live sound. And they started 
the Let It Be project as part of that, and they had cameras in and everything, and it was just a god-awful mess of song fragments and bickering and everything. And finally, they just threw the tapes to Phil Spector, and they said, hey, finish this and make it something listenable, will you? <laughs> wow. So, yeah. So I thought that was interesting, only because I've never heard it before. So I thought that was an interesting thing to mention. Tonight we're talking about time travel, and I, I, I would go I'll back and see the couple. Beatles. You could, wouldn't that be great? Yeah, <laughs> before they were big, <laughs> get autographs, buy all the memorabilia. All right, so time time travel. Now uh, we we've kicked this idea around a little bit on the podcast, and uh, there are some theories about how time travel might be possible, and. One is you have to travel faster than the speed of light, which time travel, by the way, is not inconsistent with Einstein's theories. So I guess theoretically it's possible, but you know, could you do it and could you survive it if you could do it is, is really the question. And one of the ways that's been proposed is you have to travel faster than the speed of light. But according to Einstein's calculations, when you're moving at that speed, you would have infinite mass and your length would be zero. <laughs> so, so i'm not saying yeah. anything <laughs> stop it <laughs> okay so and then there's an, another theory where you could create a device and there's an astronomer named uh, frank tipler and he called it the tipler cylinder and basically you'd have to construct this infinitely long cylinder made out of super dense material like um the core of a neutron star and spin it almost infinitely fast and maneuver a spaceship in a spiral pattern over it, which again, if you could construct it, which you couldn't, I doubt you'd survive the experiment. <laughs> and uh, and the, one of the other theories that they propose is um, that due to the, the gravitational mass of a black hole, if you got close to the event horizon on a black hole, time would slow down and Although that's not really technically moving through time. It's like you could be there and time would be moving at a different rate. And you could be there for five years and you got back to Earth. Earth would have moved on 10 years. So it's not really time travel as much as it's experiencing time at a different rate. Until you get back to Earth. Right. And then there's a little bit of lag. Yeah. Right? Well, well, you'd get back to Earth and uh, you'd be five years behind everybody else. That's not actually going back in time. It's just That's not actually, truncating uh, your own advancement, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. Every once in a while, someone will pop up that claims to be a, a time traveler. But it's certainly something that uh, people tend to be fascinated with. I think maybe because on some level that we've all got stuff we'd like to go back and, and do again. A couple times, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I'd want to stay there, but I'd, I'd visit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What are those keys flying at me? <laughs> So, um, I ran into, uh, I, what I did is I took different, uh, stories, uh, and there's probably about, well, there's one story I have of what would be time travel of sorts. And then a few stories of what I would call, I guess, time slips. Mm -hmm. And so, but they're, they're interesting. I mean, the, the one thing, I mean, personally, when it comes to me, um, ghosts will freak me out because I'm kind of open to the possibility. UFOs, I am open to the possibility. You know, the other stuff, um, you know, Bigfoot, Friday the 13th kind of monsters and stuff. Like that. I'm just, I don't find that 
that scary. But anyways, what I like about UFOs and ghost stories is you can find stories that are pretty convincing that are not easily debunked. And what I found with the time travel, time slip things, I unless you have, I haven't really found any stories that le- really leave people scratching their heads. I mean, normally there's a pretty convincing debunking. Yeah, I I I think we found that with with other topics is that uh, the things that are based on very very anecdotal cases where maybe it's maybe even just one case, one report, and, and there's been a whole mythology built around this one instance that's not backed up by anything else. Those you know when you really look at them seem to fall apart pretty easy. But you know things like ghosts that. I, I don't know if there's anyone who hasn't had that kind of experience. It, it's pretty universal, and it's pretty hard to explain away. Yeah. Here's uh, here's one story I came across that was really building kind of really well. Uh, the end was less than, a, less than an enjoyable way to end it. But it's the story of Rudolf Fence, F-E-N-T-Z. But basically, the Fence legend uh, describes how one evening in mid-June 1951, at about 11.15 p.m., passers-by at New York City's Times Square noticed a man of about 20 years old, uh, dressed in the fashion of the late 19th century. No one observed how he'd arrived there, but he was disoriented, he was confused, standing in the middle of the intersection, uh, gazing at the tall buildings, and he was hit by a taxi and fatally injured uh, before people could intervene. So the officials at the morgue searched his body, and they found the following in his pockets. They found a, a copper token for a beer worth five cents, bearing the name of a saloon, which was unknown even to older residents of the area. They found a bill for the care of a horse and the washing of a carriage drawn by a livery stable on Lexington Avenue, and that was not listed on any address book. About $70 in old banknotes, business cards with the name Rudolph Fence, and an address on Fifth Avenue, a letter sent to this address in June 1876 from Philadelphia, and a medal for coming in third in a three-legged race. And all these items appear to be relatively new. So Captain Hubert Ream of the Missing Persons Department of the NYPD tried using this information to identify the man. He found the, the address on Fifth Avenue was now part of a business. Its current owner did not know any Rudolph Fence. Fence's name was not listed in the address book. His fingerprints were not recorded anywhere. No one had reported him missing. Reem continued his investigation and finally found a Rudolph Fence Jr. in a telephone book from 1939. Reem spoke to to the residents in the apartment building of the listed address who remembered Fence and described him of a man about uh, 60 years old who had worked nearby. After his retirement, uh, he had moved to an unknown location in 1940. Contacting the bank, Reem was told that Fence died five years before, but his widow was still alive, and she lived in Florida. So Reem contacted the widow of Fence Jr. um, and learned that her husband's father, Rudolph Fence, had disappeared in 1876, age 29. He had left the house for an evening walk and never returned, and all efforts to locate him were in vain, and no trace remained. So Reem uh, checked the missing persons file for Rudolph Fence in 1876, and the description of his uh, age, appearance, and clothing corresponded precisely to the appearance of the unidentified man from a Times Square case. The case was still marked unsolved, and uh, Reem didn't want to be uh, thought of as a nut, so he never actually noted 
the results of his investigation in his official file. But uh, in terms of debunking, the story allegedly comes from a 1951 Collier's story by Jack Finney. The story is told from the perspective of a New York Police Department captain named Hubert V. Ream, who's called in to investigate the man, the death of a man named Fence, a stranger who appears out of nowhere in the middle of Times Square, dressed as if he's on his way to a costume party. So, good story, and then the air comes out of it. Yeah, but you could see how something like that, someone would say, oh, did you hear, hear about this, or I heard this great story, and at some point it gets passed on and becomes true instead of a magazine article. Right, right. So you want to go on to time slips, or do you want to add your story in, or how do you want to do this? Well, I just want to talk a little bit about there are uh, some legendary time travel devices. Other than H.G. Wells' uh, time machine <laughs> from yeah. 1895. Driven uh, by Rod was, Taylor. That's right. One was the uh, chronovisor, which was supposed to be in the Vatican collection somewhere. And this is a relatively recent device, like uh, somewhere in the early part of the 20th century. But it's just based on one person's account. It's never been, uh, never been backed up, never been uh, substantiated. And this device, supposedly built by a monk, would capture the energy, the electrons, whatever, left behind by historic events and allow you to see them. And supposedly the person who invented it went all the way back to the crucifixion of Jesus and took a picture of it on the screen. And I've actually seen that picture online that, that's supposed to be this, this uh, image from the screen. Is it all distorted? Yeah, and it looks like a very bad picture of a statue. <laughs> it definitely doesn't look like it's a human being. The pictures I've seen on the internet from like travels into the future and whatnot are like so misshapen as a result of time travel. Apparently right. time travel messes with photographs. Well, yeah, there's some uh, pictures of dinosaurs too, aren't there out there online? That, that I don't people know. Have, Probably. Yeah, I think I've seen those too. So yeah, and again, it, it's a single... A single instance, a single story, one person telling it, uh, not at all backed up. There's another one called uh, the Nazi Bell or Die Glock, which was supposed to have been a Nazi device that, according to different accounts, either allowed you to view the past and the future or travel back into the, the past and into the future. And uh, this was, the stories of this were based on some of the stuff that was coming out uh, with, with Nazi scientists after World War II, Operation Paperclip. We went in, the Russians went in, were looking for uh, German scientists to bring back here, to you know, capture that technology. So it kind of goes along with that. And uh, one of the interesting things about uh, the, the Nazi bell is, according to, to legend, it's supposed to have some sort of red fluid that circul circulates around inside of it. And after the war, during the Cold War, there was this material, this legendary material called um, red mercury, which didn't exist. And they're not really quite sure where that term came from. Uh, but they think it may have been a disinformation plant to try to root out uh, spies and people trying to capture our technology. Like they, they say, we've got this, you know, this... Uh, this red mercury that's needed to build uh, atomic weapons, and they'll just see who will, would approach them to try to purchase it. So they just you know plant these false stories about this this 
the substance and, and see who's interested in it, which is kind of interesting. Hmm. And and if you saw uh, Star Trek, the J.J. Abrams reboot in uh, 2009, I believe it was, uh, Spock is flying around with a ship full of this red liquid that has these very, very, very potent atomic uh, powers to it. And, you know, just like just, just a drop of it can make a sun turn into a, uh, a black hole. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, you know, building off of that, you know, legendary material and putting it in the movie. So just a little wink and a nod to, to people who know the uh, the legend. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. And uh, one other thing was the Montauk chair, which uh, Brookhaven Lab, uh, Montauk, uh, there was an Air Force base out there. There is a, uh, the remains of a World War II radar installation, and supposedly they're doing experiments with, uh, with time travel there. And, but again, those are based on one person's recollection of recovered memory uh, that came about because of um, uh, regression hypnosis. So, you know, not a very reliable source. And it's, we, we do have a relative uh, who worked security at Brookhaven Labs, and I did ask her about it. She had, had a couple of drinks, so I thought, you know, I'll ask her about it. And she mm-hmm. got so upset. She said, no, there's nothing like that there. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I never heard of that. That's ridiculous. <laughs> wow, cool. It, it's an appealing thought, the idea that you can go back and... Uh, and change things. But maybe we can just get into uh, some time travel paradoxes. Because one of the things with time travel is uh, what happens to the timeline? You know, there, there's, the, um, there, there's the, the Fermi paradox where, you know, if there is time travel, how come we haven't run into any of the tri- time travelers yet? So, mm-hmm. you know, they, they should be all over the place. There's another problem with, um, with the causality. Um, that if you go back and alter the past, then then what happens to you? Do you become part of a new timeline? Does it split off? Is you, you can you actually even change things in the past? Because once you go to the past and change it, it becomes part of your future. So is, was that always part of the past? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's uh, an ontological problem with, let's say, and the one I saw online was you've got the script to Back to the Future. You go back in time, you give it to Steven Spielberg. He makes the movie. The problem is, when was that script created? Because Steven Spielberg in that timeline never wrote the script. So how could you have the script to give it to him? See? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, all, uh, it's all interesting. There, there is a proposal that if you had, let's say, uh, a wormhole that loop kind of back on itself and you dropped a, a billiard ball into it so that when the billiard ball went, went through the wormhole, it would come out in enough time to knock itself out from going through the wormhole. <laughs> so what would happen? Yeah. And, and some of the, the, the explanations are, well, it, you know, time is immutable. So it might, alter the trajectory of the, the, the ball when it first goes through a little bit, but would never stop it because it can't stop it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be able to come back around. And so it's interesting, you know, if there were time travelers who were changing the timeline, um, all we know is the timeline we've existed through. And so things could have, like, you know, you could find out your future could have unfolded five different ways. And all you are aware of is the way it unfolded. And it could have, in theory, 
been affected by somebody who traveled back in time and changed the timeline. Yeah, another thing is, let's say you want to go back in time to stop Hitler. Let's say you're not going to kill him. You just when he's young, you're going to you're going to buy his book. You're going to buy a painting by him. You're going to say he's doing a great job, and maybe he you know grows up to be not not quite as bitter. So, <laughs> so you, yeah, that's your plan. But the problem is, if you're successful, then there's never any incentive for you to go back and do that, because if you were successful, Hitler never became what he was. Right, except for the fact that you acted in your timeline, and so you prevented something, and now you have no excuse to go back. So the question is, would you would you would you be cognizant of it? Would you go back to where you belonged and realized how history had changed, or do you go back with amnesia? I don't know, and yeah, and one of the theories is anytime you alter something in the past, it creates an entirely entirely new timeline that splits off. So it's just the whole multiverse idea that you know every possibility does occur. And so when human beings have feelings of deja vu and things like that, um, you know, e- even when it comes to ghost sightings, what I've always wondered in the back of my head is what, what about, you know, something like string theory of time kind of loops back in on itself. I mean, it might be you're not seeing a Victorian woman walking through your living room. You know, you're seeing kind of like a replay of a Victorian woman who walked across a field a long time ago. Yeah, there there are stories like that, like ghost sightings, where the the apparition seems to be not really there with you, just kind of op- occupying the same space, is not aware that you're there, doesn't pay any attention to you, goes ahead and like walks through a wall that wasn't there before and disappears, and and that's pretty much it. I actually have heard stories about, uh, you know, um, I think it was a story of uh, a monk. Uh, the ghost of a monk walking around, but you could only see, see him. It's like mm-hmm. the floor was like waist level for him. You know, so obviously he's moving through. Some, there wasn't a house there at the time. Right. You know, so there was no foundation. You know, that kind of thing. So it's like all very interesting things. I don't know. Time slips. Time slips. The other thing I did is I went out to the Liverpool Echo um, that had a few stories of time slips that allegedly occurred around Bold Street, um, wherever that is. But um, the first one uh, dates back from, I think, 1996. Um, but it's, it deals with a guy by the name of Frank. Um, the other thing I didn't like about these stories is that you start referring to everybody by their first name. It's not really a warm fuzzy. It's almost like you don't want to commit and start giving last names. But anyways, Frank and his wife... Um, decided to go out because uh, his wife wanted to buy a book at Waterstones, a large bookstore. And they started to walk towards the area of the shop. As they approached Bold Street, Frank decided to go to another shop first, but bumped into his friend, stopped to chat in the street, and his wife went ahead without him. A few minutes later, Frank said goodbye, visited his shop, and turned to go back to meet his wife. After reaching Bold Street, he headed towards the bookstore, as he approached, he glanced up and was surprised to see the name Crips above the door. Uh, as he was about to cross over to see what was going on, a van swept past him with the name Cardins on the side. Uh, the, you know, the, uh, the van honked. It was an older van, so it had an old-fashioned horn. So looking around, Frank realized that uh, all the vehicles are from like the 50s, 60s, that era. And... Um, because it matched the fashions everybody was wearing, the hats, uh, the overcoats, uh, the women in headscarves, you know, the hairdos, that kind of thing. 
so Frank was feeling a bit freaked out. Uh, he headed towards the store. Uh, he noticed there were handbags, shoes, and umbrellas in the window. And suddenly he saw another young woman who looked somewhat confused. She was wearing modern clothes, though. And uh, she smiled at, at him as he was approaching. They go into the shop, and um, the young woman said, you know, this is strange. I thought this was a new clothes shop. Uh, and then she walked away. So, But Frank was a former police officer, so allegedly his story has some credibility. Was it a time slip? Apparently, Cripps was a woman's shop that sold clothes back in the 50s and 60s. Yeah. It's interesting that, that police officer, that that's that argument from authority that pops up frequently in, in paranormal stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah. There was a second story uh, concerns a girl by the name of uh, Imogene. She decided to go to Liverpool to buy her sister Abigail a few things for a new baby. Um, she was happy to see a mother care store that had opened up in the corner of Lord Street and Whitechapel. She wandered around the store, picked up a few baby items, and she was surprised to see how cheap the items were. They were obviously new. Uh, she took them to the counter, and she takes out her credit card, and the staff member is looking at her completely puzzled and went off to get the manager. And they said, we, we can't take this as payment if you don't have cash. She got home, told her mother what had happened. Her mother was surprised, and she was really puzzled. She goes, that store closed years ago. There's a bank near there now, and that's where I have my account. So not believing her, Imogene took her mother back to the same place the next day, and sure enough, the store wasn't there. It was a bank, just as her mother had told her. Yeah, I've heard other stories where someone's going down the road, takes a turn, all of a sudden, everything looks different. Look at the different time period. And some, I've also heard one where that happened. And then they saw a different version of themselves, like, past them in a coach. You know, like, you know, make eye contact. It's like, wow, this is weird. Oh, and wow. then, you know, go around another corner and everything's back to normal. So who knows? Who knows? Mm -hmm. There was a third story here, the third and last one that I ran into. A um, young man named Sean who was living in uh, Liverpool back in 2006. And uh, he was a shoplifter. <laughs> Some security guard starts coming towards him after he started swiping something. So he takes off on foot. Security guard's running after him. And he goes into a dead-end street called Brooks Alley. He said he started feeling this heavy sensation around him. I mean, it wasn't just tension. I mean, it was uh, the air. And um, he waited for the guard to come around the corner, but the guard never appeared. So uh, thinking that he'd given him a slip, he came out and walked down uh, Hanover Street. Uh, the road looked different. So did the pavement. Uh, he noticed the cars were uh, old-fashioned cars. The roadworks that he knew were there were now gone. People were wearing odd clothes, dated clothes, uh, and the landscaping was different. He took out his cell phone. He still had his cell phone with him, but he'd taken it out of his pocket. Uh, it didn't work, obviously. There was no signal, um, which was really weird because there should have been signal there. He went over to a newspaper stand, and he looked at a newspaper, and the date was 18 May 1967. And so he started getting really nervous about what if I can't get back to my family and friends. Um, so he ran to um, a jewelry store, <laughs> more shoplifting. He ran to a jewelry store, tried his phone once again, but this time it worked. So anyways, it's just interesting. These are three stories of people that make these claims. So what's what's the case? Is time immutable? Is is, is it flexible? Are there you know, multiple universes? I, I don't know. I don't know, but what I would be open to is something 
like the string theory, time looping back on itself, that would might explain other things where it's not tri- time travel per se, you know, but you can sometimes sense that you've been somewhere before because it's all looping in on itself. I don't know. We'll probably never be able to control it. For, for the most part, the best theories we have right now involve tremendous speed, tremendous forces, nothing you would be able to survive, even if it, it were, if, even if it was possible to do those things, you just couldn't survive it without a Heisenberg compensator. <laughs> Inertial difference. <laughs> Is that the blender on the back of the DeLorean? <laughs> that was that's the Mr. Fusion, the Mr. Fusion unit. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's right, Mr. Fusion. Oh, my yeah. gosh. So, but this was fun. This was fun to look up these little stories. I, I think since the beginning of time, people have just had unusual experiences that they, they can't quite uh, attribute to anything. So, you know, we, we assign, you know, time travel or time slips or uh, divine intervention or gods or something. But uh, who knows? Every time I, I think about UFOs and ghosts and time travel, um, I always think back of, you know, it's part of human character. Is this all we are? You know, is science all there is? Or is there another reality that we're leaving out that we should be considering? It's part of the brain just wants to make that leap, I think. I agree. And it's, you know... Is it is that deep or BS? What is it? <laughs> well, yeah, a little both. <laughs> You've been listening to the Cathartic Yardstick Podcast. Unfortunately, we've determined that it's impossible to get those 30 minutes back. <laughs> I just don't, I'm not going to say it because I'm mature, (laughs) but I will think it in my head.